I don't know if you can tell from the song we just sung, but today's passage is a passage about martyrdom, about the death of our brother, John the Baptist. And so our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, as we read verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, you are infinite, perfect, absolute, the creator of all things. You sent your son for the sake of your people to rescue and redeem us from the curse. Because you love us, O God, would you please help us? Without your spirit, we are utterly helpless. The flesh accomplishes nothing, and so we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I hope I'm not, uh, I hope I don't discourage you from paying attention to this sermon today. Um, But if you think about what happens in today's passage, if you think about today's passage in terms of the narrative of Jesus' ministry, um, this passage does very little to move the narrative forward for us, doesn't it? Because it's informative. It's informative for us. But nothing happens in the narrative of Jesus' life here today. Because if you really want to boil down the passage, the passage is this. Herod Antipas heard about Jesus. Right? That's the connection with the passage. The whole passage is about Herod Antipas hearing about Jesus. So the real meat of the passage is found in the reason why Jesus is so interesting to Herod. Why does he look so closely at Jesus and his ministry and why does Matthew spend so much time in the tragic end of John the Baptist's life? That's, those are really the two dominant questions in this passage today. It's the reason why the passage exists. So the, the narrative moves to explain how it is that by this time John had died. Remember, the last time we saw John the Baptist, the last time we knew, of, knew John the Baptist was in chapter 11 of Matthew. And so sometime between chapter 11 and chapter 14, where we are, John is executed. 
How did this happen? Matthew is here to tell us. He's going to fill us in on something that has taken place previously to explain why Herod cares who Jesus is. And so we're going to do it with three points because that's the way we do things. Um, Three points, Herod's confusion, John's boldness, and Herod's weakness. And so what I want you to think about today as you're looking at this passage is I just want you in your hearts and minds to draw this comparison between Herod and John. These two figures that in a sense face off here, one of them seems to be in this position of incredible power, one of them seems to be in a a position of incredible weakness, and yet one of these men is absolutely free and one of them is absolutely imprisoned. And the one that's free might surprise you and the one who's in prison might surprise you. So let's just simply go to the first point, which is Herod's confusion. Uh, Herod... Herod makes a statement that indicates that he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Um, you know, surprise, surprise, someone else is confused about who Jesus is, right? That's this coming up again, very repeated idea here that no one seems to understand who Jesus is. Herod is wrong, of course, about Jesus, and he's also wrong about John. Uh, John the Baptist was beheaded. We've, we've seen the narrative, but what on earth is going on with Herod's belief that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead? Um, there's just something very incoherent about this on a number of levels. One reason why this is incoherent, John never did miracles, right? John's ministry was a preaching ministry and John's ministry was a baptizing ministry. We have no record of miracles. We have no reason to think John did miracles, Uh, He spoke prophetically, uh, as we see in this passage, and we're going to see a little more in just a bit. Um, But but John has no miracles to speak of, and apparently Herod thinks that he did miracles. Um, For for another thing, think about the underlying beliefs that Herod must hold in order to think that that this is John come back to haunt him. Um, you know, that some, some of the Jewish people had good sound views of the resurrection and some of the Jewish people had very problematic views of the resurrection in Jesus' time. Um, you may know the, the Sadducees. I was taught when I was in college, um, this sounds like something I learned in grade school, but it's something I learned in college to memorize, which was, and you've maybe heard me say it before, I know my kids have, the Pharisees were fair, you see. And the Sadducees were sad, you see, because the Sadducees didn't believe in a future resurrection. Uh, that's how I was taught to memorize it, and maybe now you can't unhear it either. Um, but they, they believed, the, the Sadducees thought, any time in the narrative, any time in Scripture where it talks about a future life, that it's, it's figurative language. Uh, they thought that once you died, that was it. You, you didn't go on living, you know. Um, the Pharisees, though, they did believe that one day there would be a resurrection of the dead. But what's Herod's view? Um, Herod's view looks as if there is confusion, right? If you, if you read the early church writer Origen, he has a, an interesting speculation about what's going on with Herod's uh, mindset. By the way, I call him Herod Antipas here. He's, he's Herod Antipas is his name. I think the, the passage calls him Herod the Tetrarch. I'm going to keep calling him Herod Antipas because I can't help myself. Um, but think of what John must believe in order for it to make sense that Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Uh, one scenario here is that he really is John the Baptist raised up physically 
and that he is now walking around as Jesus. But, you know, John the Baptist removed Jesus' head. So I, I, I think that the theory, or sorry, Herod removed John the Baptist's head. What did I say? Did I say Jesus removed John the Baptist's head? Yes. Listen to what I mean, not what I say. Uh, John the Baptist had no head. As far as we know, they've still got the head. So the belief that, that he physically is raised up, I think, is doubtful. I don't think Herod believes that this is the physical resurrected John who is here. Instead, he has something else entirely in mind. And, and I think Origen, again, Origen is not an early church father because he had some strange views on some issues. And so the church doesn't consider him a father. But they do consider him an early church writer. He's one of the earliest writers. He, he produced voluminous writings. And he did a commentary on Matthew. And here's what, here's what Origen thinks is going on behind Herod's theory, right? The theology that Herod must hold to. He seems to believe that, um, that a person's soul can leave their body and enter another person. So when he executes John the Baptist... The soul of John the Baptist goes and enters the body of Jesus. This is how he's able to make sense of the idea that, he's, that, he, that this is John the Baptist returned. And, and Origen thinks that he was confused by this because of the fact that when John the Baptist came, he was called Elijah. So there's this, there's this confused theology basically saying, well, John the Baptist has Elijah's soul in him. And then after John the Baptist is executed, Elijah's soul leaves him and goes into Jesus. Um, this is Origen's best theory at what is going on here. You know, the, the name for this is, uh, there's a, a couple of names for it. One might be transmigration of the soul. If you want to think about that, that seems to be what Herod might believe. Another word for this is reincarnation. Um, Herod seems to have some view like this. Uh, I think that's as close as you could get if you want to make Herod coherent, if you want to make some sense out of Herod. Here is, here's the reality, though, especially if that's what Herod thinks. If Herod seems to be informed by folk beliefs about the resurrection, you know, the way that people might talk, but, but he's not informed by Scripture about this. There's nowhere in Scripture that would teach you that a soul can leave a body and go into another body. There's just there's no scriptural warrant for believing that. Instead, I think the book of Hebrews explains this best for us, that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. It's appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. And so here's what Origen says about that, and I think this is right. Origen says that Herod's error is foreign to the church of God and not handed down by the apostles, nor anywhere set forth in the scriptures. He is just speculating. He lives in a world, probably, where people don't question him very often. He's, this is somebody who can say what he thinks, and nobody's going to question him. No one's going to second-guess him. You see that here. John the Baptist second-guesses him, as we're going to see in the next point, and he can't stand it. Somebody out there thinks I'm wrong. I'm going to stop them. Um, Jesus never affirmed reincarnation. He said that John the Baptist was Elijah, but when he said that, he meant that he was a prophet like Elijah. He, he means that he serves in the way or in the stead of Elijah. See, as God's, as God's people, we are 
We are not called to adopt the philosophy of the world. We're not meant to look around us and say, what are the fashionable ideas of the day? And then take those things and hold on to them. Instead, we're intended to take what God has said in his word. And when we see worldly philosophies and ideas present themselves, we're supposed to hold them up to the light of God's word. Why is that? It's because we have no knowledge and we have no authority that's worthwhile except what God has given to us. Here Herod is, what's he done? He's departed from what God has said in his word. And so he ends up with an incoherent, confusing philosophy about human beings and the soul. We need to hear the same truth for ourselves because we live in a time where there is no shortage of people who are willing to say that, well, I intuit this about the world around me, right? We have a a thousand voices bombarding us each and every week It is part of our duty to listen to the word of God, to listen to the voice of God, and make sure that he is the one who is schooling us, not the world. Make sure that God is the one who's instructing us and telling us, this is what I'm like, this is what life is like, this is what the soul is like. All of these things that you need to know and want to know, I'm going to tell you, and they are there in God's word. It seems like what's happened with Herod is that he spent far too much time listening to his own thoughts And not nearly enough time listening to the word of God, which leads to his confusion that he has here. Now, second today, we see John's boldness. Um, We're going to spend the most time on this point by far. But before we look at John, I I want us to know a little more about Herod. Because Herod is relevant here. Who is this man? Uh, It seems like there are many Herods in Scripture, and if you read Scripture, you're going to see that for sure. This is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, I'm going to give you a little history, so you need to squint just a little bit when you hear all these names, all right? Herod the Great had ten wives. One of his sons was Herod Antipas. He names Herod Antipas, his successor, when he's only 16 years old. So imagine you're 16 years old, you find out you're going to become the king, the king over Judea. But here's what happens. He spends all of his life thinking he's going to become the king. And the very last minute, his father demotes him. His father demotes him to a lesser position. He's like, I think this is a terrible idea. I don't know why I said he's going to be king. He's not going to be king. Instead, one of, your, one of his half-brothers is named king instead. So there's this incredible amount of family drama going on in in the Herod family. Uh, Herod Antipas, he's upset, right? And and you could imagine why he would be upset. Uh, He spent all his life thinking, this is what he's about to get. This is what he's about to get. And so he's so upset by this charge that he goes to Caesar. And he tries to get Caesar to overturn his father's decision. And instead, Caesar says, get out of my face. I am not doing this. This is family drama. I'm not going to be part of it. And so, if you think about Herod Antipas, you think about what kind of a person he is, you can see it from his actions, you can see it from from his life, that he is an insecure individual who has tried very hard to please the people in the region over which he has been put in charge. And so he's trying to please these sort of libertarian-leading Jewish people, and then he also is supposed to be put in place by the Romans. And so he's got to also be fostering Roman culture in Galilee. And he walks this this fine line in his life where he's trying to sort of uh, balance being Roman and being Jew so that he can keep everybody in the world happy, as if that's even possible. 
So what happens in the narrative to bring us up to this moment? Well, here's what happens. Herod Antipas marries a Nabataean queen. Um, she is basically from modern-day Jordan. And the Nabataeans were enemies of Rome, so probably what's going on here is this marriage is something Antipas never wanted. He's married to a woman he's not interested in. He didn't choose her. This is a political thing. And what happens is Herod Antipas divorces this woman so he can marry his sister-in-law. So he says, I'm going to marry my sister-in-law. And the woman that he marries is the wife of his still-living brother, Herod Philip I. So, you know, I was explaining this to my kids at the table last night. I just pointed at my two sons and I said, imagine you were married and he took your wife. That's, that's, that's how I'm going to summarize it for you now. Both my sons are not interested in marriage at this point, and they thought that was a gross illustration. So, <laughs> you know, maybe it'll work for you. I don't know. Uh, a lot of politics, all to say this guy stole his brother while he was still alive. So here's what it comes down to. Leviticus 18.16 forbids this sort of relationship, and so does Leviticus 20.21. And the passage gives a reason for it. So if you go to Leviticus, Leviticus has an argument for why this is a problem. Why is Herod not allowed to marry his brother's wife while he's still alive? Leviticus says that this woman is your brother's flesh and blood. And and if you translated that literally, if you went to the Hebrew and translated it literally, it would actually say he's not allowed to marry her because she is your brother's nakedness. She is your brother's nakedness. Herodias, that's her name, is Philip's nakedness. And so Herod Antipas has dishonored his brother by marrying her. He has uncovered his brother, hasn't he? That's, what, that's, what the, real, that's the real moral problem here. And so to uncover Herodias is to uncover Philip. And that's what Herod Antipas has done. He has done this to his own brother by marrying his brother's wife while Philip is still living. John the Baptist recognized that what Herod Antipas had done was sin and and he preached against it. Herodias hates this. She hates the sermons that are being preached by John the Baptist against her. Herod Antipas hates it too. He's embarrassed by it. You could imagine they have all kinds of reasons for wanting to shut this man down. Now you might think, why John? Why focus? John the Baptist, why focus on something like this? Why make such a big deal about other people's sex lives? Right? This is an incredibly normal, modern complaint that Christians hear all the time from the world around us. Why do you care about people's sex lives? Why do you care about what people do in the privacy of their own homes? We hear this a lot, right? As if we're the ones who are obsessed with the subject. Um, Why not live and let live? Why not let consenting adults do what they want? Clearly, Herodias and Herod are, are fine with this. Doesn't John know that love is love? They, they would say they love each other. John, love is love. John, put up one of those yard signs. Loosen up. Be cool with whatever Herod and Herodias want to do in this consensual relationship. John, why? Why care? Why? Why do you care? How does it hurt you? 
Well, there are two reasons why John cares. At least two reasons. Admittedly, there could be infinite reasons, but there are at least two reasons why. And the first is because God gives even this law because he loves us. He does not give this law because he hates us. And in fact, let's get more direct. This law was given because God loves Herod Antipas and because he loves Philip's wife and because he loves Philip. And by taking his brother's wife, Herod Antipas brings damage in many ways. Just think of it on the human level, not even the divine level between him and God yet. Just think about the human destruction here. He damages his relationship with his brother. He damages his new wife as well. He contributes to her adultery. Um, By marrying her, he forecloses the possibility of Herodias returning to Philip. He breaks off that relationship when he marries his brother's wife. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. He's harmed his own brother. He's brought shame to his brother. So just know this, that there, are, there is horizontal damage being wrecked across the Herod family by doing this. This is not harmless. It is not victimless. There are more than just the two parties who consent here who are being harmed by what's going on. So... There are all kinds of human reasons why John is not adopting the love is love mantra. For John, love is not love. Just because you say it's love doesn't make it love. What kind of love stands by while people destroy themselves? While people destroy their relationships? What kind of love would you call it that is indifferent to people's self-destruction and the destruction of others? Is that love? See, that's the first reason why John can't just stand by silently because God loves Herod too much to let him live however he wants without somebody in his life speaking words of truth. Someone has to say it. And that's what John does. So that's a horizontal reason why it's important that we see that John does not believe that love is love. Second, there's a vertical dimension to what John does. And what I mean by that is the relationship between Herod and God. Because the glory of God matters here too. And that's another motivator for what's going on here, right? Think of, think of what John says again. Think of the way he phrases it. He says, he says to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Right? When he says that word lawful, he is appealing to Leviticus. He's actually appealing to what God has said. Um, God has spoken. It's, it is right to look in God's word for human consequences, of course. That's perfectly fine. But our sin has a vertical dimension between us and God. And if we ignore the vertical dimension, then we're ignoring what it does. Because where our action in this world ultimately goes back, not to the people we hurt, but to the God that we disregard and ignore. Right? Antipas... Antipas is living as if there is no one above him. He, he perhaps has even begun to believe that he is the highest law in the land. He's living as if there is no good and there is no evil except what he wants. Right? He, he's living as if there's no God. He's living as if there's no judgment. Now again, you have the person who says, John, love is love. Get with the program. This makes them happy. But I want to just seriously... And and genuinely press back on this idea that it is loving to not care what happens to someone 
if they are endangering themselves like Herod is doing here. In, in other words, I want to defend John's choice to speak up about the private sexual sin of others here. What kind of love is unwilling to tell someone they're in danger? What kind of love is unwilling to say anything, right? If, if you believe that love is love, and when I say that, I mean it in the way modern people mean it. I mean it in the way the yard sign says it, right? Um, strictly speaking, love, love is love is just a tautology. It's just like saying one equals one. But that's not what people mean when they say love is love. What they mean is if someone feels a feeling of love, they should be allowed to do whatever that means. Um, so there, if you believe that, that as, that as long as people love each other, that, they, that we should keep our mouths shut and be okay with anything they want to do, what you're really saying is indifference and silence is love, right? Being quiet and not caring and checking out. That's what real love is. But please hear me. Indifference and silence of anything and everything is not love. It isn't. You are, you are lying to yourself and you are lying to the world when you say it. You're... Your way of loving people is not a truthful understanding of love. Because love cares more about another person than to watch them destroy themselves. And we often lie to ourselves about what's best for us. We tell ourselves, I think I know what's best for me. And when we do that, here's what we need more than anything in the entire world. We need a real friend. And when I say a real friend, I don't mean someone who's going to pat us on the back and say, hey, this thing that you're doing doesn't bother me at all. I don't care what happens to you. Go out and live your life, right? That's what we maybe deep down want. But what we want is that. And what we need is a real friend, a real friend, to take the risk of telling us what a terrible thing we're doing to ourselves. Do you know what an enemy does? An enemy watches you drink the poison. An enemy watches you ruin yourself. And then they do one of two things. They remain silent or they cheer you on and tell you to chug. Drink the poison. Drink the poison. Drink the poison. And either of those things is hateful, not loving. Right? But I want to drink the poison. That doesn't mean that it's loving to watch you do it. That doesn't mean it's loving for someone to cheer you on. It's loving to tell the truth, right? It, it, it's not hateful. It's risky. It's dangerous to the person who speaks up and says the truth. That is the person who's willing to pay more than anybody else. The person who's willing to tell the truth. It risks upsetting that person, but it's not hateful. There are times when we have to do this, and uh, it feels more and more common for Christians to be faced with these questions. Um, I want to give you an example, and it's really timely for the moment that we live in. Um, Laura Perry is a young woman. Uh, she recently published a book that tells her story of her own struggle with gender dysphoria. And as a young girl, she, here's what she found. She found that she fit in more with the boys, than, and she seemed to have trouble relating with women, like her own mother. Uh, she found that her father and her brothers really admired her when she acted like them. And gradually, she came to believe that she was a man trapped in a woman's body. She believed, she, she explains in the book that she began to believe that many of her problems, many of her discomforts with herself, with her life, would be changed if she would simply give in to this belief that she was a man trapped in a woman's body. 
And so in the midst of her confusion and in the midst of her decision to identify as a transgender man instead of the woman that God made her as, she began to demand that everyone in her life call her a he and call her by a new name, Jake. Now, in the course of the story, eventually, by God's grace, she found help. And she, and she found help not by denying her body, but by learning to accept the body that God had given her and learning to conform her will to that body. Now, I'm going to quote from Laura Perry here. It's a lengthy statement, but I think you will see that this goes back, and this connects with what we're talking about with John the Baptist, right? This is what Laura says. Like many transgenders, I demanded that my family call me Jake and use pronouns matching my chosen gender. It used to infuriate me that my mom never would. I was so angry I wouldn't talk to her for months. And yet it was like a tether to reality for me because she kept calling me Laura. It reminded me of who I was. It was as if God refused to let me go no matter how hard I tried to let go of myself. Though it likely will not be received that way, remember it is actually loving to speak the truth. It is loving to affirm who God made your child to be. One day we will all stand before Christ and we will be accountable only for what we said and did, not for anybody else's actions. How many of us will stand ashamed because we compromise the truth so that a friend or a family member wouldn't be angry with us. While we cannot force our loved ones to change, we must share the truth in love. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Wait on his timing and his words. But do not be afraid to speak the truth, and do not evaluate your success by their reaction. Remember, he must change the heart. No amount of scheming on your part will change them, but he will use you in his own way. Even if they reject it initially and scorn you or call you hateful, you never know what will become of that seed. I have heard countless stories of how the truth was shared and initially rejected, but later it made a profound impact, just as it did in my life. End quote. Maybe you're facing some kind of situation that makes you really resonate with what Laura Perry is saying here, right? It may be a different issue. Or it may be this exact issue. I don't know. But here Laura is saying from the inside, from her own experience, that real love tells the truth even if it is unwelcome. Even if it is costly in the short term. And even if it is not received well by the other party. Tell the truth. The love is love philosophy is a philosophy of hate. It's a philosophy of destruction. It, it is telling people to chug the poison. Real friends are people who care enough to say, you know this is wrong. God says it is wrong. This will destroy your body. It will destroy your soul. How could I love you and tell you that it's okay? That's a real friend. That's a real friend. Um, anyone who is willing to watch me self-destruct and prodding me to self-destruction hates me. They don't care about me. They don't care what happens to me. They're living for the moment. How do I feel about them right now? That's what they're living for. I want him to like me now. I want her to like me now. That's what they're living for. But anyone willing to see my life implode without saying anything is not my friend. That is not love. It is hate. You might have friends right now. They're self-destructing. And you're afraid of what will happen if you address it. Maybe you are 
Maybe you're self-destructing and you have people speaking the truth and you hate it, right? You hate that they won't come along with your plan to live against the grain of the universe and against God's word. Love speaks up. Love tells the truth. It does it in a loving way, but it, but it tells the truth. Now, it takes care in order to speak lovingly to someone or to speak the truth to someone uh, when they're unwilling to hear it. It is hard. It's challenging. It's the easiest thing in the world, though, to go along with a lie or to refuse to tell the truth. It is the easiest thing in the world, especially if you're just blending right in with everybody else when you do it. It's much harder to hold the line. And that costlier thing when it comes to goodness and truth is what real love looks like, whether the person that we are loving sees it or not. John the Baptist actually loves Herod Antipas. John the Baptist loves him. He loves Herod more than anyone else in Herod's life, actually. He is Herod's best friend, and Herod doesn't know it. Now, I can tell because John is willing to pay the high price to tell him the truth that would have set him free if he had just withheld it. And I guarantee you, Herod Antipas did not feel loved by John. He is loved more by that man than anybody else in his whole life. And if you asked him, who hates you more than anybody else, he would have said, John the Baptist. May God give us grace to be truth tellers like John is here. Uh, It takes strength. It takes spiritual fortitude. It it, it takes a greater love for Jesus than for the world around us and even even for the people in our lives. Now, third today... You know, here we are, we've seen Herod's confusion, we've seen John's courage, and then we see Herod's weakness in, at the end of the passage, right? No, think of Herod. Um, no doubt, Herod thought of himself as a strong man, um, or at least he hoped to be a strong man. He seems like a weak man who is trying to convince himself he is strong. You know, he sees himself as a powerful person, he envisions himself as a, as a, a powerful person, and yet he's actually very much the opposite Deep down, this man is weak and scared and paranoid. Um, We see it here. By the way, I'm not just psychologizing himself. I think we see it in the narrative. You know, one of the ways we see his weakness is in verse 5. You look at verse 5. You know, it says that he wanted to put John the Baptist to death. But the thing that stopped him was that he feared the people. So he, it doesn't say he feared God. It says he feared the people. And, and that fear of people drove his action. Initially, the action is, I'm not going to put him to death. I'm just going to hold this guy indefinitely. That's, that's, that's his cowardice on display, that he won't do it, that he won't kill him. And so he puts him into prison to rot. But he won't do what he really wants to do, which is put him to death. Fear of people means that he's afraid to do what he wants. And for John's sake, this is a good thing, right? It keeps him alive, but it also means that Antipas is, is far from a strong man, right? He constantly has to put his finger in the air and feel which way the wind is, is blowing. What a weak man. This is how he has to live. No principles. He just, he just does what he thinks will get him in the least trouble. We see the, the weakness of Herod Antipas in other actions around John, right? In some ways, he wanted to kill John, obviously, but when he actually orders the beheading of John, the text says the king was sorry. So he decides he wants to kill John, but he won't do it because he's afraid of the people. Now he decides to kill John because he's afraid of the people. Everything he does, he's not doing what he wants. 
Every action in the narrative, he's not doing what he wants. He never gets his way. Herod doesn't. It actually says he was, he was sorry for ordering the beheading of John, right? What a confused and conflicted person. He wants John to stop telling the truth, but he also has a sense that there's something wrong with killing him, right? He knows deep down John is telling the truth and he is silencing the only person in this world who is his real friend, the only person who is willing to show him reality. And he's about to put that one voice to bed. And why is he doing it? Because he's weak. Right? We see it right here. Verse 9 says, he only does it because he's afraid of his guests. He can't lose face, right? Their opinion controls this man. I think this is one of the things that we maybe tell ourselves that if we could just have power or money or authority, then we would be happy. Why? Because we'd be free. We think we would be liberated. We'd be free. We would not have the constraints on us that we do now. And if we could just live lives without constraints, then we would truly be happy. Nothing could stop us. We could live the way we want to finally. And yet Herod here lives in an opulent prison. An opulent prison. This is not a man who does what he wants. This man is not free. This is a man who is trapped in his life. And he has to live for others, and he can't violate the rules that were set for him to follow. That is, that's Herod. Meanwhile, look at John. John the Baptist does what is right. He speaks freely. He follows his convictions. He does what God says. He lives with the consequences. He doesn't try to escape them. John is free. Herod is trapped. John is free, and Herod lives to please people, and therefore, he is not a free man at all. We need to think well about freedom, because freedom is not about doing anything that we want or imagine. When we live like, we, like that, we only end up creating more prisons for ourselves that we have to live in, and then we have to move within the confines of. So, so we're actually not freer. The person who's truly free and truly strong is the person who lives and walks in the fear of God and commits his way to the Lord. That's the truly free person. And he lives with the consequences. Right? The, the free person is someone whose heart and will have been made to conform with the real goodness and truth of God and who he is. So when we fear God, we're never freer and we're never stronger. And when we fear men, when we, when we act so that we can avoid trouble, we're never weaker. Fear of man keeps us from doing what's right. Fear of God fortifies us to do what's right, regardless of the consequences. You know, I mentioned uh, Herod Antipas is insecure, he's weak, and he felt that way. This is a man who feared people. Well, here's what we find out, actually, if you look at history. If you look at history, you find out that Herod Antipas had every reason to be insecure. He had every reason to be insecure. Eventually... If you want to know how Herod's story ends, Herod is eventually banished by the emperor Caligula about six years after the resurrection. And he lives out the rest of his life with his wife Herodias in the far reaches of the empire, a place we sometimes call the boonies. Uh, he goes to the boonies, he gets sent away, he, get ex- he gets exiled. Um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he tells us that John was executed at a place called Machaerus. Machaerus, and don't Google it now. But if you Google it, (laughs) 
you can look at this fortress that Herod lived in. Uh, Machaerus was a family fortress that the Herod family owned. It has been excavated. You can see some of its remains today. Um, I looked at photos of it. I was struck by the view. I was struck by the view. It's on this high plateau overlooking the Dead Sea. Um, archaeologists have found this. When they, when they dug through it, they found a lavish, lavish fortress that had huge living quarters, water installations, columned courtyards, reception halls, dining halls, baths, storerooms, right? Just this place was a fortress. If Josephus is correct that this is where John the Baptist was executed, then this elaborate fortress is the place where John was put to death. What an incredible contrast, right? John, uh, the faithful preacher, lived in poverty, uh, self-denial, imprisoned in this lavish locale by a man who lived the total opposite lifestyle. You really couldn't get a more opposite lifestyle from John than the guy upstairs from him sitting and ordering his execution. John lives in self-denial. He lives in the fear of God. Herod lives a lavish, self-indulgent life, and he fears man. And now here they both are. And what did Herod's self-indulgence and his fear of man get him in the end? A better life? He's constantly afraid. He's afraid of men. He's afraid of what's going to happen with him. Um, And with all the compromise that he has lived with, keeps power for another six years. And then eventually finds himself on the outs with Rome. He gets an extra six years. I hope you will forgive me for the simplicity of this message today. It is relatively simple, really. All of this story explains why Antipas was so interested in Jesus. Why he was even afraid of Jesus, right? It's another story of a man who thinks he found another person that he should be afraid of. That's what's happened. He's got another man that he's afraid of. And that makes him a weak man, a man of brutality, a pathetic, fearful man, but also a cruel, self-centered ruler. In a sense, the person here that we pity, you know, you might read it first and feel, oh, poor John. It's not John, it's Herod. A man without hope in this world, a man constantly fearful, constantly insecure, a man by lives by the dictum that love is love. Herod is the truly tragic figure here. You know, in many respects, it's really hard to avoid. This is a dark story, right? It's not good for either of these men on one hand, except for one thing. You don't see the brightness in the story until you get to the very end. Because, because look at what happens. First, the disciples of John take his body and they, and they bury it. You know, we don't think much of burying people. I, I mean, I think you do until you actually have to do it. Until you're put in charge of it. Where will we bury the body? What will the burial means be? Will we use a coffin? Uh, what's going to happen, right? What are we, we have to work out the practicalities of this. But when you bury someone, you are communicating something. I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong to do cremation. But there is a thought process historically in Christianity behind why we bury a person in the ground. What does it indicate to bury somebody? Well, remember... Herod doesn't understand the resurrection. This is a man who's very confused. John the Baptist is dead, and yet his body is buried. Why? Why do they bury his body? His body is buried in anticipation that it will one day be raised up. Buried in expectation that there is a coming hope. Buried in the hope that one day 
even the mutilated body of this man, will be restored and whole once again. How can that happen? It comes down to the man that the disciples go talk to next. Because after they bury John, verse 12 says, they went and told Jesus. They told Jesus what Herod did. They told Jesus about the evil of Herod. They told Jesus what was done to the body of his cousin. They told Jesus about the heartbreak. You can, you can imagine how much it must have hurt those disciples to see this man that they loved so horribly mistreated. He didn't deserve that. Christian, John's disciples, you can take your hurt to Jesus too. Like the disciples You can trust him to right the wrongs, especially the wrongs that come from telling the truth. You've lost a relationship because you told the truth. Take it to Jesus. You're afraid of losing a relationship with someone because you tell them the truth. Take it to Jesus. You can tell him what was done. You can tell him what you're afraid of. You can open your heart to him. You are not alone to mend your own broken heart. You should never think that you can fix yourself, that you can give yourself relief. Go to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. He won't just listen, but he will answer your prayers. You can trust him to do justice. You can trust him to right the wrongs. You can trust him to listen to you as he did these men. Sometimes the hurt is so horrible so irreparable in this life that the way Jesus does justice and the way Jesus mends our broken hearts is not that we find instant relief. Instead, the answer comes in his time, sometimes much, much later than we would prefer, never at the wrong time. Jesus brings the answer when it's time. And I know, I know we can become impatient with the Lord. We become impatient with his answers when we pray. We, we become impatient. We want to see an answer to our hurts. We want to see the hurts of others solved right now. And we can wonder why God so often delays. And yet, God's timing is perfect. And Jesus is not delayed in the least. You can trust him just as John's disciples had to trust Jesus with this. I think John, John would say to all of us, Do not pity me. I'm going to be raised up. Do not pity me. One day my cousin will call me forth from the grave as he will for all of his people. And when he does, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. The the hurt will be no more. And every prayer on that day will find its yes and amen in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we not only ask that you would help us to be brave in speaking the truth, but we also ask that you would help us to bring our hurts and cares to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.